Welcome to the Itchy Podcast. I'm David Kalfi, editor of Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, a journal of the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. It's April 2022. There will be two segments in this month's podcast. In the first segment, we will be talking about medical transport-associated infections. I suspect that this is a topic that many of us have not spent a lot of time thinking about, but our guests today are going to talk to us about why we should be thinking about this. I'm joined today by Diego Shapps and Dr. Debrick Anderson, who are authors of two papers in the April issue of Itchy that address this topic. Mr. Shapps is a fourth year medical student at the Duke University School of Medicine, who will be starting his general surgery residency at Duke in July. Dr. Anderson is a professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Duke University Medical Center and the director of the Duke Center for Antimicrobial Stewardship and Infection Prevention. Welcome and thanks to both of you for speaking with me today. Great to be here talking to you about this. Thanks, David. Happy to be here. Since this topic may be new to many of our listeners, uh, maybe one of you can get our discussion started by telling us what a medical transport associated infection is. Sure. Um, so a medical transport associated infection, uh, the way we have defined it is that it's a, a subset of healthcare associated infection, and it is any infection acquired as a direct effect of exposure in a medical transport setting. But now that we're talking about definitions, we can kind of hone in on that medical transport setting, what that means. Um, and that's the way we look at it. It's any vehicle that is used by medical professionals to transport patients during any time, whether it's emergency or planned or designated or improvised. Great, so um, I think that's really helpful. And I mentioned before, I think this is probably a subject that really hasn't received a lot of attention in the past. So I'm, I'm curious about what piqued your interest in this topic. Sure, so before medical school, I was trying to figure out uh, if I wanted to be a doctor, if I wanted to have patient experiences and exposure to that kind of environment. So uh, I became an EMT to kind of see what that was all about. Um, I trained down in South Florida at an academy and did my ride-alongs for educational purposes with a large fire department down there. And then when I returned to Western Pennsylvania for college, I worked at a private EMS company that did both 911 and inter-facility transport calls. So one day uh, we were transporting a patient from the hospital to a hospice. And as you know, as part of that transport, you have to record vital signs and use the ambulance equipment and do everything to somewhat evaluate the patient that's in front of you. And you know, I had cleaned the equipment as best I could and made sure that it was nice and clean for this individual that was going to be going to hospice. But when I dropped them off at the hospice, I came back to my truck and I couldn't help but think, you know, it, although I was very diligent, cleaned my equipment, did everything I could, is there the potential to transfer one of these pathogens to that individual who's already pretty sick and make things a little bit worse? And this is something that I thought about uh, for a considerable amount of time. I had a bunch of jobs and a bunch of educational experiences. And, you know, the opportunity to study this never returned. But it wasn't until I got to Duke uh, for medical school where we get an excellent opportunity to have an entire year to do research that I looked up who could theoretically help me on this endeavor to discover whether, you know, medical transport associated infection is a thing and, and the effects of it and everything about it. And that's where I found uh, Dr. Anderson online and I emailed him for a meeting and uh, I've always been curious, Dr. Anderson, what, is, what was your point of view of that meeting and everything moving forward? Well, I certainly am happy to add on there. You know, when Diego reached out, 
he asked a question that was essentially in line with many of the uh, similar to many of the types of questions that we we like to answer with our group anyway. You know, what is the impact of a contaminated environment on patients' uh, acquisition and outcomes? And his question fit to me with a lot of our thought process about kind of the movement of healthcare and various types of healthcare outside of the acute care hospital. And, and to date, or to that point at least, a lot of our investigations had really focused on the acute care hospital. And so I saw it as an opportunity to try and, and answer what sounded like a really intriguing question, but in a more unique and novel uh, environment. And so I was, I was definitely intrigued and, and was pleased to, to work with Diego to try and work through this. As I'm sure you'll hear more from him in a moment. However, there's practically nothing out there on what exactly this issue means or, or how to define it or what to do about it. So we definitely had to start from the, the very beginning of the, of the process when we were starting to tackle the issue. That's great background. I think it's really interesting to hear how that what seems to be a very formative experience you had many years ago has led several years later to um, all the work that you've done over the past couple of years and this new relationship and, and collaboration that you have developed during your time at Duke. So with that in mind, uh, one of the articles that you published this month is a review article that describes some of the data that at least suggest that this type of infection could be a significant problem. So can you tell us a little bit about what you learned during your research of the topic? Sure. So um, this was very exciting to me because I had been thinking about uh, this issue for several years, but I had never, you know, evaluated the literature to see what was out there. And um, with Dr. Anderson, we were trying to determine, hey, is this, you know, worth studying? Is this worth moving forward with? And so some of the things that we found in this review are that multidrug resistant organisms and other potential pathogens have been isolated in the medical transport environment before. And these include potential pathogens such as MRSA, VRE, ESBL positive Klebsiella pneumoniae, and Pseudomonas species. These types of bugs that we know have been isolated both in the built healthcare environment. And now after kind of evaluating the literature, we know uh, that they are found in the medical transport environment as well. And they've been found in the medical transport environment on pretty much each surface that has been evaluated and they've been found on EMS provider hands and uniforms. So based on that, initially, we know that there exists a potential for patients and healthcare workers to be contaminated, infected, however you think about that, after an exposure to the medical transport environment. But there's not only that, because there is that potential where there's pathogens and bugs in the environment. But the question is, how do those bugs get from the environment to either the patient or the healthcare worker? And one of the things we found when we evaluated the literature was that EMS provider adherence to decontamination and hand hygiene, those types of behaviors, is quite variable. You know, I get it. Uh, when I was an EMT uh, on the field, you are busy. You're working hard. You have several calls, one after the other. There's a lot going on, and you're trying to take as best care of patients as you can. And so it's really hard to focus on decontamination and hygiene when you're working, running around, doing multiple calls. But this is something that the literature showed. So we know that there exists a potential for transmission of pathogens from the environment to patients or EMS providers themselves. And so these are a couple of things uh, that we found with our evaluation of the literature. I might add to that. What we found with that seemed like a pretty reasonable foundation that this was an area worthy of subsequent investigation. But to that point, most of what we were finding was really just that descriptive 
content. There was not much we could find about what happened next. And kind of to look at it from the other side, we certainly understand the notion that there's no such thing as a sterile environment. We're not expecting an, a, an ambulance to, to a medical transport vehicle to be sterile. But what is the impact of that kind of transient exposure to potentially bad bugs? Is there an impact on patients and patient outcomes? Which I think ultimately what we're trying to get to with this line of investigation. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And, and, and as you allude to, there's a quite a bit of data that suggests that this could be a problem, but really a dearth of data regarding the frequency at which these infections actually occur. And you point out that more research is needed, which I think is a good segue to a discussion of the other paper that you published in this month's issue of Itchy, in which you describe a study that you conducted to assess the risk of acquisition of methicillin-resistant Staph aureus and vancomycin-resistant enterococcus during ambulance transport. So can you tell us a little bit more about that study? Sure. So when we sat down to evaluate the literature that we had found, we found that, like we've mentioned, there is more inquiry to be had here. Some of the things that we thought about that could be the next line of investigation were, what are the specific factors leading to environmental contamination? Why is the environment contaminated in the first place, right? Um, and we know that there are two groups of individuals that use the truck, and that would be the EMS providers themselves and the patients. And so we decided at that point that we were going to think about that part later. What we really needed there was to decide, hey, is there an association between ambulance exposure and the development of infection or colonization with those pathogens that you mentioned? And if we found a signal here, it would inspire us to continue down that line of inquiry that I mentioned prior. So what we did was that we performed a retrospective cohort study that included all the patients that presented to our emergency department in Durham, North Carolina from 2016 through 2019 with chest pain. We then narrowed that cohort even further to include only those patients that presented from home and were coming to the hospital. They were ruled out for any sinister issues and went, were discharged right back home. And that was done so that we could try to reduce the impact of confounding by exposure to healthcare, other healthcare environments. And we also kept the patient's first emergency department visit from the study period and dropped all subsequent presentations. And then we went even deeper and stratified the patients by uh, their method of arrival at the hospital, uh, whether they were exposed to the medical transport environment or not. And for this, we chose, you know, ground EMS, so ambulances, trucks, that type of thing, and air transport, uh, such as fixed wing and helicopter transport. And at, when we boiled down, we had about 11,000 total patients. And we performed a propensity score match based on patient comorbidities to make sure that we were doing our best to control for confounding based on comorbidities. And our primary outcome was what you mentioned, a newfound MRSA or VRE colonization or infection within 30 days of transport. And what we found was that patients who presented to the ED via ambulance were almost four times more likely to have MRSA or VRE within 30 days of their encounter, which was indeed a signal and which inspired us to continue with our inquiry. And I might then layer onto that, you know, Diego provided a lot of really good details. We, we really did a lot of thought and discussion about how exactly to pinpoint the best way of analyzing this. 
in a retrospective fashion where you can't control for you know every single thing that may be on that continuum for how someone might acquire MRSA or, or VRE. And so that's where there really was a, a lot of uh, decision-making about ruling out nursing home patients. We don't, you know, there's just way too much confounding about what might be already in place in that population. People that have been in the hospital more recently and really trying to narrow, in some ways, just kind of, you know, stacking the deck against ourselves to try and make sure that, that we're really, you know, answering this question with as much or as little, excuse me, with as little kind of potential confounding. Hey, it's retrospective. We get it. We're not saying that this is a, a definitive association, but, but we were certainly intrigued enough by the size of the, the difference between these groups to, to, to consider that to be an, an important uh, finding from the paper. I think those are great points and, and I thought a, a nicely designed study given all the limitations of this type of kind of retrospective research that you mentioned. And the other thing that struck me is that you found a notable, you know, significantly greater incidence of MRSA and VRE in that population, uh, but you were only looking at MRSA and VRE. So this may potentially be the tip of the iceberg in right. terms of these medical transport associated infections, because you were only looking for two very specific types of infections or colonization. So I guess with that, this is, I think, a big step forward, perhaps, in what we know about these types of infections. But but what else do we need to do and what other types of research might be needed to help move this along? I think that is the exact question that we have been kind of grappling with and thinking about for, I guess, the three years that we've been working together at this point. And the next step we have taken is now that we just, as we discussed, that there are two groups of individuals that use the back of the ambulance, patients and EMS providers, to determine how do the pathogens get to the back of the truck and to the equipment and kind of what factors are responsible for that. That's one line of inquiry that is necessary here because we know that there are uh, so many pathogens uh, present in the medical transport environment. Other things that we have to think about are what is the impact of this? How many patients are getting medical transport associated infections? What are the costs of this? Who's more at risk for one of these? Is it trauma patients because you know they may have had their contact with the world kind of the natural barriers they have have been violated by trauma? Is it other sick care patients for any other reasons? We don't know. So these are the questions that we're asking ourselves, uh, and we would love for the rest of the community to kind of start thinking with us about as well. Yeah, and you can imagine if you keep going down the path that eventually we get to a point where we're really doing some significant culturing, surveillance, screening of patients as they come in and out to really move all the way down from, you know, what's there, where the potential exposures are, but, and where it comes from, but then how often does a patient leave the, the truck with one of these? And then how often after that does it then subsequently lead to some kind of adverse event? Those are pretty resource intensive studies, of course, to try and pull off. And so we, we've kind of taken the stepwise approach that if we continue, you know, retrospective, and now some we're doing in the, in the midst of, of some prospective evaluation, we could then move to patients. We could then talk about outcomes. Each of these we're kind of considering almost like a brick in this foundation for, for trying to build the importance of this issue and then potentially even subsequent interventions. Yeah, I think that the talk about interventions is certainly a topic of interest to the listeners of this podcast and the readers of Itchy, where knowing about something is important, but preventing something is also a real priority 
for all of us. And I know you alluded in your re uh, review article to a number of potential opportunities that might help to, to minimize this risk, but we tend to end each episode by asking our participants to give our listeners an action item that they can take away from the podcast. So what is perhaps one thing our listeners could do today if they're interested in reducing the risk of medical transport associated infections, given that we don't know everything that there is to know, but what would be a, like a good basic first step? Yeah, I think it uh, depends on which group you belong to. So if you're an EMT or a paramedic, you know, take that extra time today and every day to wipe up that spill or clean up at the end of the call. As we pointed out in this podcast and in these two papers, it's worth it. I know it's difficult. I've, I've been there, but it's worth it. If you are a medical director of an EMS service or in the leadership of an EMS agency, make sure that you're supporting your providers to do the decontamination. You could consider incentives or other ways to help our heroes with this decontamination. It's really difficult to do. We understand that. So it might take getting really creative to support uh, the EMTs and paramedics and this part of their job. And then finally, if you're an EMS educator, just remember that infection prevention is a two-way street. I remember when I was studying, I was taught a lot about how to protect myself as the provider on an ambulance from the environment. You know, there's a lot of pathogens out there. There's, there's a lot out there that one needs to be protected from. And I think that is unbelievably important to remind our EMTs and paramedics that in education. But I think it's also important to talk about that two-way street and say, hey, how can we both protect ourselves and also the patients that we transport? And to make that a priority early on in the EMS education to make sure that it's ingrained in us, just like taking care of ourselves and protecting ourselves from pathogens. So those are, the, those are some things that I think could be done for those groups of stakeholders. And I would add that from the infection prevention side, you know, I think a lot of hospitals and certainly major medical centers have their own fleet of, of transport trucks that they use. Again, maybe not universally, there's, there's going to be other companies and, and folks that you get involved, but at least the group that your hospitals primarily interacts with. So here at Duke, there's a you know, Duke EMS that uh, has both helicopters and trucks. And so we would say that, you know, based on a paper like this, it, it's worth touching base with those individuals and in reviewing infection prevention protocols in some way. Hey, if that's a part of your health system, then that's part of your infection prevention responsibilities, we would argue. And so starting with that initial conversation, what are your protocols? What are your procedures? What products are you using? What type of education <clears throat> are you providing? Uh, and can we as an infection prevention group help with uh, improve or refine any of those different processes? I think that's great and a, a good suggestion. And perhaps, I know many of us probably did have more interaction with our uh, EMS teams during COVID because there's a lot more attention on environmental infection control. And, and maybe that's a way that we can kind of capitalize on some of those relationships we built that maybe we didn't have before. So yeah. maybe that's perhaps one good thing to come out of COVID is, is those better relationships. But thank you both for joining us today. I think this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for your contributions to the April 2022 issue of Itchy and for really reinvigorating or invigorating this conversation about medical transport associated infections. Thank you. Thank you, David. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much. In the second segment of the podcast, we'll be talking about a paper titled Do Antimicrobial and Antithrombotic peripherally inserted central catheter materials prevent catheter complications. 
an analysis of 42,562 hospitalized medical patients. Joining me for this discussion are two of the authors of this paper, Professor Amanda Ullman and Tricia Clyden. Dr. Ullman is a professor and chair in pediatric nursing and a Fulbright scholar at the Children's Health Queensland Hospital and Health Service at the University of Queensland in Australia. Tricia Clyden is a nurse practitioner in the vascular assessment and management service of the Department of Anesthesia at Queensland Children's Hospital. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for having us. So many of our listeners are actively involved in their facilities CLABSI prevention programs and in decision-making regarding new technologies and products that might be helpful in CLABSI prevention or prevention of other catheter-related complications. So when I saw your paper, it really struck me as one that could be of great interest to this group. And I know that you're both part of the Alliance for Vascular Access Teaching and Research at the Menzies Health Institute, Queensland. So the topic of vascular catheter complications and their prevention is clearly something that you spend a lot of time thinking about and know a lot about already. So I was curious as to what led to this particular study, or maybe to rephrase that, uh, what question or questions were you trying to answer with this study? Yeah, we're always fascinated by new technologies that can reduce healthcare associated harm, especially when using central venous catheters, including PICs. So when we saw these new technologies become available and start to be used in some of our healthcare institutions, we saw it as an important role for us to play to examine their actual performance versus perceived performance. So it's very motivating and exciting to be able to partner with Professor Vineet Chopra and, the and his team at Michigan to undertake this research. All right, so it sounds like prior to this study, there wasn't a whole lot of real life effectiveness data for these catheters. Is that accurate, would you say? We're, we are running a program of research on the, the performance of these central venous catheters, these PIC materials. Um, so we had previously undertaken two pilot randomized control trials, which were informing our current large uh, randomized control trial. But we knew that study was years away from publication. And we knew had, we had an ability to start informing practice now. So we really relished the opportunity to access this data set so that we could, we realized that clinical decision-making was starting now, no one was gonna wait for the publication of other research. So I think that's a great segue then into telling us a little bit more about what you did and how you conducted this particular study to provide the data. And so this was a cohort study of prospectively collected data. And that data is housed by the Michigan Hospital Medicine and Safety Consortium. So that consortium is really quite amazing. It's been collecting data on peak performance, including infection complications, as well as utility since uh, 2013, those 52 hospitals. And um, it's got a real depth of quality data as well as quantity. And there's quite a few studies around that tell us how they collect that data. So I won't get into information about that, but I encourage if anyone's interested, it's been really well reported. And we were able to access this data from the 2013 when it commenced to 20, October 2019. The really important part of this cohort was to define these variables in this database. So we categorised the PICs that were being used and recorded into three groups. So plain polyurethane, which is what we most commonly see in, in healthcare institutions. And then the other two categorizations were either antimicrobial, that meant, and that was determined on the basis of their brand names or device details that indicate that they have, they're coded by an antibiotic or they're coded by an antiseptic agent like chlorhexidine. 
Or um, the other really, really important category is anti-thrombogenic materials. So this means they're engineered with a hydrophilic or hydrophobic surface, and they can use either a biological or medication agent as well. So that was the really important part of, of defining that within the existing cohort. And we used, established you know, really rigorous criteria for how you define both infection using the CDC criteria, um, DVT, which needed to be both, sorry, VTE, which needed to be both symptomatic and radiologically confirmed, and then occlusion. So they were our three primary outcomes that we were really interested in examining. And the rest of the research is pretty standard in that we wanted to use an analysis, uh, which was a Cox proportional hazard model. And within that model, we incorporated known provider and device characteristics that we knew already were associated with picolator complications as additional controls in our COTS model. We wanted to understand how these PICs performed in our general population of general hospitalised patients, but also some high-risk populations, which in, in this cohort, within the data that was available, we were able to really drill down on their performance in a cancer environment and a critical care environment. So, you know, two really important um, populations. I recognise there are other important populations, but these, these are the ones that were available in our data set. Fantastic. Sounds like you put a lot of thought into, into how to best answer these questions, given the type of data that you are working with. So what did you find? Yeah, so we are clinicians and we were hoping to find a solution. But what we mainly found was we, we were not really there quite yet. We found that, of course, most people were still using uh, uncoated polyurethane devices. So that was 93% of them were still using that more, I don't want to call it old school, but definitely the one that's been around longer, while only 5% of them had antimicrobial peaks used and 2% of them are using an antithrombogenic. So heavily dominated by our control. We did study the association between antimicrobial peak performance and CLABSI because we recognised that's, that's what their goal is to achieve. And then we looked at antithrombogenic materials and thrombosis and occlusion that didn't see any significant reductions of risk in the general cohort. We found standard um, findings of collapsing risk associated with double or triple or quad uh, peak use in comparison to single peaks if uh, that increased risk if they had active cancer or if they had an existing CVAD when they had a peak inserted. And we also see unsurprising findings regarding increased risk of VTE or occlusion, again, if they were using a double or triple or quad lumen peak in comparison to single, and if they had a history of DVT or an existing DVT. So they were expected findings in the model. But yeah, we didn't find any indication of improvement or reduction of infection, thrombosis of occlusion. Are there any potential limitations of this study uh, in terms of those findings or any caveats that readers should be aware of with regard to those findings? So I think the obvious limitation of this study compared to a randomised control trial, which is what we look to for considering cause and effect, is that it was an observational design. We also recognise that the variation in population that or cohort that had a standard polyurethane catheter compared to an antimicrobial catheter or an antithrombogenic catheter was quite varied. There was significantly a much larger cohort of patients with the simple polyurethane catheter. So I guess those two things are difficult to draw overall or um, real conclusions and say that this is a final study. There's certainly more to be done to understand the real benefit if there is one of these um, newer technologies for CVCs and PICs. 
And I think you alluded to earlier that you are doing some ongoing work or some additional studies uh, with these catheters. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the other uh, investigations that you're doing? So uh, we have just recruited our 950th patient of a 1,050 patient cohort. That will be ran they have been randomized to receive antithrombogenic and antimicrobial or a plain polyurethane pick. And we're examining their effectiveness to reduce all PIC complications, but in particular, we're looking to see their role to prevent infections, thrombosis and occlusion. We're hoping to provide some more definitive information soon. Um, so the cohort should be finished recruitment in the next couple of months. We're very excited to share that data soon. That study is happening in three tertiary facilities in Queensland, in Australia. It includes adult hospitalised and paediatric hospitalised patients. I look forward to seeing what you found. Me too. I was just going to say, <laughs> I was just going to say importantly, that study does include a paediatric population as well. And I guess that's a variation from this data set to this larger study that we're undertaking is that this was a data set of adult patients. And as a paediatric nurse, I'm always putting in a plug for don't get, forget the small people. <laughs> the other part of this I just wanted to highlight as well. We are also undertaking a health economic evaluation of, of the use of these devices. We recognise that all of these new technologies come with an additional expense. So we need to make sure this is a value-based healthcare decision. And we all know the costs of PLABC and the costs of treating VTE. But if we only see borderline effectiveness, which is the population that we should be targeting this intervention on uh, to ensure that we're, we're really using our healthcare funding wisely. Sounds to me like perhaps a reasonable take-home message while we're waiting for the results of your other studies is perhaps that we should not be thinking about this technology as the silver bullet uh, that's going to solve all of our PIC-related thrombosis, occlusion, and infection challenges, and that we still need to pay attention to all those other strategies that we know work really well. I think that um, is an incredibly important take-home message because I guess every clinician always tries to do the right thing for their patients and no clinician ever provides a lower standard of care. But you do have a, uh, a, I suppose, a subconscious that you do have this new technology that if you're using it, you have some level of belief in its ability to perform. So you think you've got an edge already. So it's not that we're saying that people would might provide a lesser standard of care, but they might just forget those really small things, the tiny things that we know that matter. It's not always the big thing that is going to provide that protection for our patients. It's all the little things that come together to provide that ultimate high-level care. And that's really in agreement with what our previous guidelines have been on the use of any impregnated material for central venous catheters. They've said before you introduce any form of um, antimicrobial catheter into an intensive care environment, for example, you should make sure that everything else is optimised. We need to be implementing the simple things like great hand washing, great decontamination of needleless connectors, um, you know, good clinical decision-making to remove those devices as early as possible. So this, I think we've definitely we've found at the moment is maybe it's a piece of the puzzle, but yeah, like you said, it's not a silver bullet. We've got, uh, we've got to look to see help our, all of our practices and how we can best improve all of them to reduce these really complex um, complications in a complex health environment. Anything else that you'd like to add or comment on that we haven't spoken about so far? I guess for me, we need to also remember that the insertion and the maintenance both make up 
the outcome of these devices. So I'm quite involved in the insertion of catheters and I teach a lot of insertion to new people who are starting to learn insertion of PICs in particular. And you do understand that there is a certain learning curve from the expert inserter to the novice inserter. And similarly, I think when there's a new technology, there is a learning curve even for the expert inserters to learn how to insert these new catheters. And we do know that the traumatic insertion is going to increase the risk of infection and the risk of thrombosis. So um, I guess that's one of the things that um, might have contributed to the outcomes is that this is a newer technology. People are learning this new technology. And as they become more familiar with it, those outcomes might change. So again, it's just remembering that there's not one tiny thing that's going to make a difference. It's multiple um, pieces in the puzzle. So just a reminder to not necessarily think that one catheter is the same as the other, one insertion kit isn't the same as the other. Understand your equipment before you start inserting these catheters on your real patients for the first time. Well, thank you both for discussing your research with us today and for publishing your work in Itchy. I also want to thank our producers, Lindsay McMurray and Barry Wilhelm. And finally, I want to thank our listeners. I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Itchy Podcast. <laughs>